Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 68, Dr. Harriet Baber on Relative Identity and the Trinity. Imagine that someone is reading the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, and he runs across a character named Cephas. Who is this guy? I've heard of John and Peter and James, but who is this Cephas? A more informed Bible reader will tell him that Cephas is Peter. The point is not that Cephas is like Peter or similar to Peter, but rather that Cephas just is Peter. They are the same man. They are numerically the same man. If you're counting the men mentioned in this chapter, you shouldn't count Cephas as one and Peter as another. That would be double counting. Rather, we're dealing here with one man with two names, one being who can be referred to in different ways. As a matter of fact, this same man is elsewhere called Simon. Simon just is Peter, and Simon just is Cephas. It may sound like we're talking about three men here, but when we identify them, it is clear that we're talking about just one man. In the sort of logic which is standardly taught in introductory college courses, one analyzes the claim that Cephas and Peter are the same man as a conjunction of three claims. First, that Cephas is a man. Second, that Peter is a man. And third, that Cephas just is Peter, which is to say that Cephas and Peter are numerically identical. Identical what's? Just identical. This is an absolute claim, seemingly not relative to any concept of a kind of thing. Cephas and Peter are the same man is a relative identity statement. The same what? The same man. But Cephas just is Peter is not relative. So the standard analysis breaks down a relative identity claim into three parts. To say that A and B are the same F is just to say that A is an F, that B is an F, and that A is numerically identical to B. So relative identity statements are understood in terms of absolute or non-relative identity statements. But not all philosophers agree. The famous logician Peter Geech, a Roman Catholic Christian, for highly technical reasons we can't go into here, thought that absolute identity statements are meaningless, that it makes no sense to ask whether or not Cephas and Peter are the same full stop, that is, numerically the same. We can, however, ask whether or not they're the same man, the same apostle, the same brother, animal, citizen, and so on. So for Peter Geech, relative identity statements are basic and can't be broken down into the three components we just explained, because, he thought, the third component was meaningless. Taking relative identity as basic opens up the question whether or not some A and B could be the same F, but different G's. Could, for instance, Cephas and Peter be the same man, but different apostles? Or could Cephas and Peter be the same man, but different husbands or different citizens? It would seem not. In fact, there has been no uncontroversial case of some A and B being the same something but different something else's. While various metaphysical puzzles have moved some philosophers to posit such cases, 
In each case, a majority of philosophers thinks that the puzzle in question has a better solution. Still, the matter remains controversial, and in today's episode, you'll hear an accomplished philosopher suggest another non-theological case of being the same F, but different G's, one having to do with air travel. But perhaps the most important puzzle case is that of the Trinity. Peter Geech thought that the traditional Trinity claims will only be self-consistent if relative identity is basic. Here, the Father and Son will be the same God, but different divine persons. And since the threefold analysis of relative identity statements is rejected by Geech, for him it doesn't follow that the Father just is the Son. In today's episode, we hear a presentation from the 2014 Society of Christian Philosophers meeting at Niagara University in Niagara, New York. This conference was dedicated to the work of distinguished Christian philosopher Dr. Peter Van Inwagen of the University of Notre Dame. Our presenter is Dr. Harriet Baber, a professor of philosophy at the University of San Diego. Her research ranges from metaphysics and philosophical theology to feminism and philosophy of economics. She's authored a large number of professional articles and also newspaper columns and a book entitled The Multicultural Mystique, The Liberal Case Against Diversity. Her presentation today is called Relative Identity Redux. She criticizes some work on this topic by Dr. Michael C. Ray, another accomplished philosopher, a colleague of Dr. Van Inwagen at Notre Dame. We also get to hear the discussion period following her talk, in which she fields some interesting questions from Dr. Van Inwagen and others. You may want to watch the YouTube version of this talk because it includes Dr. Baber's helpful and entertaining PowerPoint slides, which will help you to follow her points, especially if you're not a professional philosopher. You can just search the title of this episode on YouTube, or you can find the link at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Here, then, is Dr. Harriet Baber. The central thesis of my paper is a niggling little logical point. And it'll be very short, and there are some logic symbols at the end. But since it's such a niggling point, I will feel free to editorialize. So this is the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is all that I care about, because I'm interested in minimal Trinitarianism. I'm not a theologian, and I have never been blessed with revelations. So I really don't know what... The Father said to the Holy Ghost in camera last Tuesday, and I don't know how to decide between social Trinitarianism and Latin Trinitarianism, or how to decide whether the persons in question are involved in perichoresis or circumcision or anything like that. I'm just interested in this stuff. Now, this is a classic view. This is minimal Trinitarianism, but even minimal Trinitarianism is in trouble. Because according to this view, the Father is God, and the Son is God. Therefore, by transitivity of identity, the Father must be the Son. But according to theology, the Father is not the Son. So we have a problem <laughs> if we want to be orthodox. You know, in my defense of minimal Trinitarianism, I think there are two and a half ways to go. I thought of the halfway to go about two weeks ago, so I don't claim to have it spelled out, okay? One way, and this is the way I want to explore now, is to fault the relations between the Trinitarian persons to say that they are not, strictly speaking, identical, or that the relation in question is not strict classical identity. And that is the account that I want to explore today. The relation, I claim, is a relative identity relation, and that's one way of going. 
There is another way to go that I explored in a couple of papers that I did a few years back. Instead of faulting the relation between the individuals in question, we can fault the reference. We can say that the names, father, son, etc., are in some way ambiguous. And then we can systematically block any kind of talk that seems to violate transitivity of identity or other logical laws. The third way, or the halfway that I'm thinking of, that I'm just cogitating about, is mariological. Namely, we could think of the Trinitarian persons as parts of the Trinity, but not parts in the sense that we would normally understand it in a strong Mariology, but the way we might understand it in a very weak Mariology that doesn't have the weak supplementation principle. So if we adopt this very, very weak Mariology, then we can still say that even though the persons are individually parts of God, there is nothing more to God than each one of the persons, right? There's no extra little stuff. So I'm toying with that idea. But let's backtrack and say, what I'm interested in now, whoop, there's the identity cop again. What I'm interested in now is the first strategy, which is the relative identity strategy. Given the assumption that the relation between the persons is strict classical identity, obviously we have a problem because we want to say that the father is not the son, but transitivity of identity forces us to say the father is the son, so we've got a problem. If you are, however, a relative identity theorist, you may think that interpreting one as three and two as four will get you out of the problem. But will it? Well, it depends on how you interpret these relative identity statements. And I'll say that a relative identity statement is any statement of the form of three and four, where we say X is the same F as Y, where F is a sortal. Now, on the standard interpretation of relative identity statements, this does not help. Because on the standard interpretation, on the analysis of relative identity statements that is orthodox, we say that we understand a relative identity statement saying X is the same F as Y as saying X is an F and Y is an F and uh-oh, classical identity X is identical to Y. Now, if that's the way we analyze it, moving from one and two to three and four is no help whatsoever because we get the father is a being and the son is a being and the father is identical to the son for three and we get for four. It's not the case that the father is a person and the son is a person and the father is identical to the son. And since the father is a person and the son is a person, the only way that we get the negation is once again. Okay, so we can't do this. If we want to adopt the relative identity analysis of these sentences and make it go and avoid the incoherence, we have to be relative identity theorists. Now, what exactly is a relative identity theorist? Well, it's somebody who accepts R. And the name of this thesis, R, comes, I think, from Wiggins way back. The original article on this was Peter Geach, Identity, 1967, which is a superb, superb and deep article that I've just reread that doesn't involve a lot of symbolism, but is very interesting. And all relative identity theorists accept R, namely, that it's possible for A and B to be the same F, but not the same G. Now, let's get specific about this. The relative identity theorist holds that this can be the case where F and G are substantival predicates, designating kinds rather than adjectival ones. Because everybody, even the orthodox, I mean the logically orthodox, right, admit 
that there are some cases where you can say A is the same F as B, but not the same G. We could say, I could say, for example, that my toothbrush is the same color as the Golden Gate Bridge, but not the same shape. Well, it's okay with adjectives because identity isn't involved. So the relative identity theorist says, no, this goes also when the predicates in question are sortal predicates, when they designate objects, object words rather than adjectival words. Secondly, the relative identity theorist says that this holds where A is an F and B is an F and A is a G and B is a G because otherwise we can come up with trivial cases that everybody accepts. Like Mark Twain is the same person as Samuel Clemens, but Mark Twain is not the same number as Samuel Clemens because they're not num he is not a number. So this thesis says even when we have substantival predicates, even where A is an F, B is an F, A is a G, B is a G, you can still get a case of R. Now, this is what all relative identity theorists hold. Some are more radical. And this is the case for Geach himself, who in addition to R, affirms D. Namely, statements of the form X is identical to Y are incomplete and therefore ill-formed. A proper identity statement has the form X is the same F as Y. Now, this is very radical. It says ain't no such thing as absolute identity. It's not constructed out of relative identity statements. It just isn't. Now, if you hold this kind of view, you've got deep logical, well, problems. You've got to do something about the semantics, because as far as I know, and I'm no logician, just teach baby logic, the semantics involves set theory. And set theory seems to assume classical identity. You've got these items that are members of the set, and counting them just is. So if you hold this view, you've got some splaining to do. But this view I hold, simply accepting R and holding that in ordinary talk, many of the claims we make about things being the same or different are really relative identity claims that don't cash out into absolute identity. That's not very radical, is it? Because all we're saying is that there are a bunch of kinder, gentler equivalence relations that we can talk about. And Bertrand Russell somewhere, and I now cannot find the quote, said something like this, you know, identity does really well in the platonic heaven of abstracta. But when you use identity talk to describe the material world, in particular spatio-temporal objects, you get into trouble. So it seems to me to be a reasonable proposal that even if there is such a thing as identity, which does well in the platonic heaven, and I'm not even sure that it does that well in the platonic heaven, but let's leave that aside. When it comes to ordinary talk about persons, both human and divine, maybe what we need is some kinder, gentler equivalence relation. Now, what I'm going to talk about in particular, and here's where I stop editorializing and tell you what I'm actually going to do, is a tiny little mistake, a tiny little logical glitch in Michael Ray's response to Peter's version of relative identity Trinitarianism. Now, what Ray says is, look, why don't we try some version of relative identity, but which version? Well, he's, he's agnostic about whether we're going to go with just R or whether we're going to go with a more radical Geechean view. And by the way, if you want a less radical version of relative identity, I think the best thing on it is old book by Nicholas Griffin called Relative Identity, which sets up a version of the theory which allows for absolute identity as being constructed out of relative identity relations. So I'll call the more radical view the Geechean view, and I'll call the less radical view the Griffin view. And what Ray says is, look, he's got to go with one of those views or another, or else the theory is incomplete. So which is it? 
if he goes with Geech's view, the view that there really is no such thing as absolute identity, then he's committed to an unacceptable anti-realism. Really? Why shouldn't we be, I mean, what exactly is it to be an anti-realist? There are all kinds of anti-realists, and admittedly, some anti-realists, on some account, there's no room for God. So for example, if you're a solipsist, if you think that only you exist, then there's no room for God. But I really wonder if the kind of anti-realism to which Geech's view commits us is theologically unacceptable. After all, historically, we know that Geech was a Catholic, although a Roman Catholic, and a very smart guy. So you know, you know, might have thought he might have noticed this. And I can get back a little bit to Geech's view if anybody is interested in it, but let's leave that aside. So that's the first horn of the dilemma that Ray proposes. If you're committed to the radical view, you're stuck with anti-realism. On the other hand, he says, and this is the horn of the dilemma that I'm going to deal with, if you hold that there is absolute identity, if you reject D, then you don't fix the Trinity doctrine. You're stuck with the incoherence. And this is a claim that I want to challenge. I'm going to grasp the second horn of the dilemma, and I'm going to show that on this non-radical view, you can make the Trinity doctrine coherent. Or you can reveal that it's coherent, because of course it's coherent. I believe it. And I don't believe anything incoherent. <laughs> OK, so here is Ray's argument. Look at this. We've decided that instead of one and two, we're going to go with three and four. Well, it follows from four. Since the father is not the same person as a son, by anyone's account, the father is not identical to the son. That violates indiscernibility of identical. So five definitely follows from four, if we admit that there's such a thing as absolute identity. Now, if you're Geech, if you hold that view, then forget about five, because you might as well be saying, Bloom. It makes no sense. But if you hold that there is such a thing, you're stuck with five. Now, Ray says, OK, it follows, therefore, it follows from five that the father is not the same being as the son. How did that happen? How does that follow? I don't see anything here unless we accept absolute identity. I don't see anything going on here. But the reason that Ray gives for the inference to six is a little principle that he comes up with called P. And I'm quoting him verbatim. This is really in the text. He says, OK, for all x and all y, if x is distinct absolutely from y, if it's not the case that x is identical to y, then it's not the case that x is the same being as y. OK, now, where does this come from? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from his only argument for the principle P is this claim. And I'll read it. Being is plausibly the most general sortle on a par with sortles like entity, thing, and object. I agree. Used to be called a dummy sortle. Thus, x is absolutely distinct from y, seems to be synonymous with x is not the same being, thing, entity, object as y. So this is also verbatim. And so the little tiny logical point that I'm going to make is that Ray has confused generality with what Peter has called dominance. And the confusion is right in there. And it's this claim that Ray invokes to support P. And I'm going to be kind to him because, I mean, synonymous, that's a pretty strong claim. I'm going to say, OK, look, let's not pin him on synonymy here. Let's just say he's claiming that generality implies dominance. Okay? And I'm going to suggest that this is also mistaken. 
Okay, so there's the crux of the matter. Sortal generality is straightforward, and even if you are orthodox logically and you reject relative identity, you can buy this. To say that a sortal G is more general than a sortal F is to say that something's being an F implies that it's a G, but not vice versa. So something's being a dog implies that it's an animal, but not vice versa. That's straightforward. And moreover, there are some sortals that are maximally general. G is maximally general if it's such that for all sortals F, X is being an F implies that it's a G. And Ray's reasonable suggestion is that this is a case for being. After all, beings are things that be. So whatever it is, it's a being for all X and all F. If X is an F, then X is a being. OK, great. I have no problems with this. But how does this get us to P, the claim that non-identity implies not being the same being, and contrapositively, that being the same being implies being absolutely and strictly identical? Well, there's this thing of dominance. And this is a little bit of a novelty. It's something of a term of art. And the claim here is now I'm quoting from Beninwagen. I'm quoting from his piece. A relative identity predicate I dominates a predicate F. And F may be of any polyadicy and be either ordinary or RI. And it's the latter kind that we're most interested in here. If all sentences of the form A bears the I relation to B imply A is an F, whatever, whatever. has You know, the idea is the predicates go through. The idea here is that when you have a predicate F that dominates a predicate G, the idea is that A's being the same F as B makes A the same G as B. That's what dominance comes to. Now, note, dominance can be a little bit confusing here because dominance, as understood here, may be mutual. And, and I'll avoid any double entendres that are so tempting at this point. But on the standard analysis, all relative identity predicates are dominant. Everything dominates everything else. So for any F and any G, if A is the same F as B, then A is the same G as B and vice versa. The relative identity theorist holds that there are at least some cases in which dominance is not mutual. Even if it's only the Trinity case, where being the same person dominates being the same being, but not vice versa. And uh, it's hard to come up with ordinary language cases that are non-theological to make this at all compelling. Geech's initial case was men and sore men. And we don't generally talk about men and sore men. So the classic case that generally is cited as a possible case of relative identity in ordinary life concerns people and passengers. Now, I just flew here from San Diego in the process of doing this. Somebody spilled stuff on my computer, and it is now dead. So this is very poignant to me right now. But I consider a former flight where I occupied seat 6A on the flight from San Diego to Baltimore. And I occupied seat 17C on the return flight. Now, according to absolutist orthodoxy, and I mean orthodoxy in the logical rather than the theological sense, the 6A occupant is the same passenger as a 7C occupant, if and only if they're the same person. But on relativist heterodoxy, the 6A occupant is the same person as a 7C occupant, but not the same passenger. In other words, person does not dominate passenger, but passenger dominates person. When you have the same passenger, you have the same person. But it's not the case, always, that when you have the same person, you have the same passenger. Now, on Geech's view, 
The idea here is that as you enrich a theory with more predicates, you get less identity, so to speak. If we have a relatively impoverished theory, if we don't have predicates that might be called customer service predicates, like uh, predicates regarding seat assignments and legal occupancy, then we have no way of distinguishing passengers other than the way we distinguish persons. But if you enrich the theory, if you include all of these predicates like legal seat occupancy and seat designations and confirmation numbers and stuff like that, then you have the resources to make finer distinctions than the mere person distinction. And you can distinguish passengers on this sort of heterodox account you can distinguish individuals as passengers when they are not distinguished as persons. Okay, so this is the kind of picture that relative identity suggests as a case of non-mutual dominance. Now, let's get back to Ray. Now, wh why, how do we defend his P thesis that when we don't have identity, we don't have sameness of being and, vice and conversely? Well, he seems to accept, and this is not a quote from Ray, this is rational reconstruction. He seems to ac accept the principle that if a sortal G is more general than a sortal F, the relative identity predicate is the same G as dominates the relative identity predicate is the same F as. Now, this is his fundamental error. He's mistaken generality and dominance. And what it ultimately comes to is a little mistake about the scope of a certain quantifier. So it's a dumb little logical point, just a niggling thing. So the dominance of being says that if x is the same being as y, being, then x is identical to y, so we get the principle p, which is its contrapositive, assuming we recognize strict identity. If we go with Geach and we don't recognize strict identity, case closed, we don't have to worry about this. So p, that principle, is licensed by the generality and dominance principle, apart from which there is no reason to believe it. Other than, of course, if we are absolutists about identity. And if we're absolutists about identity, we don't even have to bother with this paper because we can just say goodbye. The whole point that Ray is trying to make is that, okay, even if you don't reject absolute identity, it still doesn't do the job. And the problem is that the generality and dominance principle is false. Generality does not imply dominance. A relative identity statement, an RI statement says, a is the same F as B if there exists an X, and notice where the quantifier is, if there exists an X such that A is the same F as X and B is the same F as X, right? So of course you get A is the same F as B because relative identity relations are equivalence relations, so they're transitive, no problem. Now, sortal predication is another thing. Now, if you're Geach, you hold that sortals are quote-unquote derelativizations of relative identity predicates. But I'm not going to make any claim about what's more fundamental and what's less fundamental or what's grounded in what, because I don't really understand these relations of grounding or whatever. But let's just say we can cash out the notion of sortal predication by saying A is an F, A is an object of a certain kind F, if there exists an X such that A is the same F as X. That seems pretty reasonable and uncontroversial. Sortal dominance says a sortal relative identity relation like being the same G as dominates a sortal relative identity relation being the same F as if there exists an X such that A is the same G as X and B is the same G as X implies, this is what it means for G to dominate F, that there exists an X 
such that A is the same F as X and B is the same F as X. That's to say, if there is an X, if there is an object to which A and B both bear that same F relation. So the claim is, and this is where the symbols come in, and I'll try to go reasonably fast because I'm getting close to my end, but bear with me. It says that from seven we may infer eight. So this is seven, this is generality. It says, for all X, there exists a Y such that X is the same F as Y, entails there exists a Y such that X is the same G as Y. That is, if X is an F, then X is a G. Dominance says G dominates F if there exists an X and a Y such that there exists a Z such that X is the same G as Z. I'll give an English translation presently. And Y is the same G as Z. And that entails there exists a Z such that X is the same F as Z and Y is the same F as Z. In other words, if X and Y are the same G, then they're the same F. Now, let's show that that entailment doesn't go through. First of all, let's assume that G is more general than F. If any object X bears the same F relation to Y, or to some Y or other, it bears the same G relation to some Y or other, not necessarily the same Y. Next, suppose that A is an F and B is an F, since G is more general than F, it follows that A and B are each individually G's, hence that there's an X that A is the same G as, and an X that B is the same G as, possibly, but not necessarily the same X. Okay, that's the crux of it. Now, suppose A is the same G as B. Then there's something C, such that A is the same G as C, and B is the same G as C. Okay, that's what we mean by relative identity relation. Well, G does not dominate F given what we've assumed. Since A is the same G as C and B is the same G as C, we get A is the same G as B. Since A is an F and B is an F, there's something A is the same F as, and there's something that B is the same F as, but not necessarily that same something. And let's say it isn't the same something, right? So let's say that a is the same F as this thing D, and B is the same as this thing E, and D is not identical to E. So now we have, now we have, we made these assumptions, but now we have a counterexample because we have a case where even though G is more general than F, and all the other things are satisfied, we have A is an F, and B is an F, but A is not the same F as B, I proved it, okay? So it shows, therefore, that generality does not imply dominance. Now, apart from the generality and dominance principle, is there any other reason to accept P, which is the crux of Ray's argument? Well, the standard analysis of RI statements, relative identity statements, implies P. Remember the standard analysis? X is the same F as Y is to be understood as X is an F and Y is an F. And X is absolutely, strictly, classically identical to Y. But the standard analysis by itself renders the Trinity doctrine incoherent. So why did we bother? If we accept the standard analysis, we could just forget about reading the paper. We're through. Now, I had another example, which I won't go through. But suffice it to say, 
that principle P on which Ray's argument runs is either implausible or superfluous. Think about the argument about the burning of the Library of Alexandria. If the stuff agrees with the Koran, it's superfluous. If it disagrees, it's heretical. In this case, P is either implausible or superfluous. So the detour through P is point, which is false. The detour through P is pointless. God wins. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, of course, I agree with everything uh, you say, except maybe some of the extra theological examples of uh, relative identity, but about everything you say about right. Anyway, uh, let me try to underscore some of these things from a slightly different angle. So the, the article that Ray is criticizing say, contains a consistency proof. Mm -hmm. That is, proving that no inconsistency follows from any of these formulations. If he was right in inconsistency, would follow. He doesn't point to the mistake in, in the inconsistency, uh, in the consistency proof. But can I go to the board? He says this, right? If X is not identical with Y, uh, then it's not the case that it's the same being. Uh, X and Y are the same being. So, of course, if X and Y are uh, the same being, uh, then uh, X is identical with Y. This will be plausible only if being dominates absolute right. identity. That means this, or that implies this, right? That if being dominates, uh, you can take any absolute identity formula, say that one, and then substitute the other letter over there. So we get that immediately follow. This, of course, immediately follows from that, since this is a, a logical truth about identity. But, of course, identity dominates everything. Absolute identity d dominates everything. So, if being dominates absolute identity, then, or identity of being, then identity of being would absolute uh, anything and anything. If this is plausible for being, it's plausible for just about anything. So, if, if this principle were plausible, that every predicate would dominate everything and you wouldn't have relative identity right. logic at all. Right. So, of course, I agree, but, you know, my editorial point is I... I not only agree about relative identity, but I am more fanatic about it because I think it could do a variety of jobs for us. So, I mean, if I can digress just slightly, I think, of course, uh, one job I think it could do is consider, I'm just thinking a few years back, there was a lot of discussion about best candidate theories for personal identity, among other things, and people would say, but this is crazy. You mean I don't survive if I have a competitor, something completely extrinsic to me? So there was a lot of kerfuffle. Should we accept extrinsic grounding for identity or not? Well, you know, if you're a relative identity theorist, you can just say, well, you know, some relative identity relations admit extrinsic grounding, like the identity of ships ship of Theseus case, but other relative identity statements do not admit extrinsic grounding. So once we dispense with absolute identity when it comes to, not when it comes to abstracted perhaps, maybe, but when it comes to personal identity discussions or other discussions of identity puzzles regarding middle-sized spatio-temporal objects, we can get ourselves out of a lot of difficulties by accepting this modest thesis. Yes? So I'm wondering about the Orthodox absolute yeah. identity, there's a pretty standard yeah. trans intertranslatability between mm -hmm. claims like there's at least three Fs and claims about identity and quantification. So is that just going to translate in the expected way into 
the framework for relative identity. So yep. in order to say yep. there are at least two Fs, um, I say exist X, exist Y, X is not the same F as Y, yep. and X and yep. Y are both Fs. Is that this, this gets us, okay, so the idea here is that there isn't one counting relation. There are any counting relations that your theory admits. And that's why people worry about the anti-realist thrust of this. I mean, are we going to say, is A the same as B? Well, it depends on your theory and what predicates you have in your theory. So it counts as the same in some theories. And not, but then, you know, you want to say, but wait, doesn't this commit you to some kind of anti-realism? And I don't think the anti-realism, such as it is, that it commits you to is objectionable. Because one of the rationales that Geach gives for his radical view is he, contrary to Quine, who he is responding to, is he said, look, Quine says that when you enrich the ideology of a theory, you also expand the ontology. Because you have more ways of distinguishing things, so you have more things to distinguish. Geach says, my view is modest, because I can monkey with the ideology all I want, and the ontology isn't touched. Of course, that makes you wonder what the ontology was in the first place. So yeah, there are a lot of different counting relations, and isn't this the way we operate in ordinary life? We can count by individuals. We can count by groups of individuals of various sorts. When I used to be in vestry, we counted by pledging units. Okay, and all these ways of counting for different purposes are perfectly reasonable. Yeah, so I wasn't meaning this to be an objection. I was no, no, no. So, so sometimes, so if I ask how many, often the right response is well. How many what's? Um, how many what's? So, but my worry here is, um, I, I could be mistaken, but I'm worried that this might have the result that there are going to be four divine persons. Uh, okay, you do it. I can't do it. You do it. Uh, so, actually, I'll just quote. Okay. Okay. How many persons are there in the Trinity? Three counting by persons, one counting by beings. Right. Um, how many gods are there? Three counting by persons, one counting by beings. Three counting by absolute identity. This is one reason not to like for the Trinitarian not to like absolute identity. But still one counting by substance or yep. uh, so, uh, yeah, this is explicitly affirmed you know, yep. as part of the theory. Yeah, if the fathers had had relative identity, if they had had the privilege of reading Geach's stuff, which they didn't, they well, would have gone for this view. Of course. This is the orthodox view. So you're not going to be able to say that the Father is the same person as God, right? No. Um, Father is the same being as God. Right. Um, but do you also want to say that God is a person? Yes. So, that comes out true. So are men are men. Look, you can't do it in English. There's a formalism. But English has a standard translation in the formalism God is a person. Uh, the translation of God as a person comes out provable. Okay. God, God is a, like a persona, like one of the. God is a person. But not a Trinitarian you mean, person. You, like, you mean like whatever you like by person. Right. Passengers I mean are people. What we mean by in everyday life, which is somebody who can be addressed, a thou. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if I could generate a little disagreement in this session. Well, yeah, because you propagated this mistake in your article. No. <laughs> um, well, I mean, this is this is the Van Inwagen conference, so I mean, what I hear you saying is that you think maybe this is true that uh, the Trinity understood as rel relative identity is true, and you believe you believe in relative identity right. relations. 
that aren't reducible to absolute entity relations. Because well, I, they, I, 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 wait, wait, wait. The reducibility claim, I'm agnostic about this because I don't know what reducibility means, but okay. go on. You're friendly to relative identity for not the Very friendly. Means. Now, what I understood in Peter's article, and I, I don't know if he'll agree or disagree with this, but that he was giving an apologetic defense. It, it's showing that you can't prove the Trinity to be inconsistent. Mm -hmm. And he's not committing to the relative identity claims. Um, and so I take, and I, and I thought I remember somewhere where he said he didn't think there were any non-theological examples that are plausibly understood as. Okay, so you're worried, you're worried about ad hocery here, right? You're a relative identity theorist when it suits you, but not when it doesn't suit you. But I'm perfectly okay with that view because think of what we're talking about. We're talking about, we're concerned with a being that is sui generis, namely God. So even if we don't need relative identity or want relative identity to deal with these other cases of ordinary middle-sized objects, it's no ad hoc thing to say this goes for very odd things, well, sui generis entities like God. Ad hoc worries are one thing, but the disagreement I was asking about is it seems that you think the Trinity interpreted with, along the lines of relative identity is true. I thought that he wasn't committing to that. Well. He said, I'm not a theologian. I'll leave it to theologians to judge his theory uh, of the Trinity. I'm not a theologian either. I think it's worthy of, um, I mean, look, there are a lot of areas in Christianity where there are permissible differences of theological opinion. The atonement is uh, certainly uh, a case in point. Lots of different theories about the atonement, all of them theologically permissible to almost every uh, denomination. The Athanasian Creed is certainly a, certainly a catalog of things that you mustn't say about the Trinity and the Incarnation. I think, you know, everything I say in this presentation of a theory about the logic of the Trinity, it's not a theory about the metaphysics of the Trinity, you know, so it doesn't, uh, um, Aquinas, um, Augustine, and uh, various other people talk about the metaphysics of the Trinity. I think it's consistent with all those, but yeah. it, unless they're so incoherent, they're inconsistent with everything, you know, which I think is a real possibility. But I just want to say, if you if you understand all the statements this way, you won't be able to deduce a contradiction uh, from them, as in the, uh, the, the diagram at the beginning uh, that Harriet started with. Well, diagram displays a contradiction. Uh, there's no such contradiction, but you know, that's all I claimed. This is what I started with when I said that I don't know anything about how the circumcision works or whether a social Trinitarian interpretation or a Latin Trinitarian interpretation. So you can't see relative identity Trinitarianism as being on all fours with these other accounts because it doesn't purport to be a metaphysical account. It's metaphysically innocent or as innocent as one can make it. It's logic, not metaphysics. So, um, I doubt that, I mean, you said it was rational reconstruction, but I doubt Mike Ray had anything in mind of the long argument. Mm -hmm. But I quoted him. I, I know, I know, I know. No, I mean, not, I mean, that little quote, as you said, there was no argument there. It was just, these look like they're synonymous. What struck me was perhaps that maybe Mike just thought this was really quite obvious. And maybe he wouldn't have been worried if it ended up generalizing this result that, that once you thought about this long enough, relative identity stuff is hogwash. I mean, so, so, so that might be that he would welcome the fact that it turns out having the that it's not just this little point um, that's isolated, but rather quite general. 
and, and this is like actually more a request for, for education on my yeah, yeah, huh. So one of the things that you noted in, um, in describing helpfully for us this of what's involved with relative identity statements and their understanding um, is that not all Fs will do. They've got to be a very specific kind right, right. of substantive, you know, whatever, right, predicate. And you know, maybe the idea, I mean, I said, again, I'm not trying to read Mike's mind here, but um, maybe the idea is just, look, being's not the right kind of thing to put in relative identity statements. It's got, it, it's so contentless compared to stuff like person or horse or passenger or whatever, that when you put it in there and look at it, you can see this just is the same claim as, you know, say X is the same being as Y, that just is the same claim as X equals Y. So what you have to say is just uh, that if you're gonna give rel do relative identity stuff, don't try to make being one of your sortals. And if you can't make being one of your sortals, you can't put it to work in giving an account. Can you make God one of I'm your sortals? I'm right now, Peter, not you. I want, okay. oh, I, want, I, want, I want the education first and then, then we Okay, maybe that's what he had in mind, and I'm not a mind reader either, but he just sort of threw this thing off, okay? What do you think about that challenge, though? If one just says, look, um, since not all sortals will do, and being looks well, like it's got almost well, nothing well, to wait, it. wait a minute. Why won't all sortals do? Well, do for what? I'm sorry. Not all, not all Fs and Gs will do, right? Um, and I, maybe I don't think, maybe I think that there's no content to being other than something other like than that, identity, that yeah. honors the constraints of, of this, classical identity. Yeah. You right? really are arguing about a non-existent issue here. Am I really? Yes, because being was not a contentless thing. It meant substance in the metaphysical sense. Uh -huh. mm. So Mike, if Mike says it meant entity, is the same as entity, or something like that. He was just uh, going off in the wrong direction as far as if he's criticizing me, anyway. Yeah, it's metaphysically so, so loaded. number three is not the same being uh, as the square root of nine, for example, because they're not substances. The number three is not the same being as. Well, okay, hold on. Okay, so so being being is actually, is, is much, all right, much more substantive than, I mean, so it's, you know, <laughs> yes, what you're saying is, I mean, exactly. Well, I mean, so, so one of these sort of, I, I don't know what to think. So one of these worries is whether there is sort of one more general sort that, that both we and God stand in. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say, but I'll have to think about this a while. Okay. Good. I've got one for one quick class question. Yeah. Um, okay. If there's a quick one, maybe there's a... Come on. <laughs> I win. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You win. You win. Wow, that was funny. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.